at my welcome to you all on this holiday weekend. I invite you to turn to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, and we're going to be giving our attention today to Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. I was visiting with a, a school administrator a couple weeks ago. I asked him how he felt this past year went, and, and he said that he sensed that his faculty and staff were really tired, really fatigued, more tired and fatigued than he remembered them ever being in the past. Teachers want to be teachers because they want to teach. However, it seems that every year the number of distractions that present themselves to both students and educators seem to be more complicated and draining. We can imagine some of those challenges because we've all walked through, navigated the COVID outbreak over the past couple years. But this friend said, it is the proverbial minefield of gender identity through which school teachers and staff must now so delicately tiptoe that has really worn them out the most. Every accommodation must be met for every child with regard to their preferred pronoun, he, she, they, it, etc. And failure to make such accommodation is responded to with fervor. And therefore, the vigilance required is so draining. So here, here, this is the example that he gave to me. He said two students at one particular school had determined that their gender now is cats, they're cats, and their parents informed the administration that the school was responsible not only for respecting their children's decision to be cats, but also for providing litter boxes at the school for these cats. Now, my point in sharing this is it's not to provoke any particular reaction from you. I'm sure there's quite a number of thoughts running through your minds. Um, rather, my aim is to invite you to examine your impulse. What, what rises up within you when you hear that? My aim is to get you to consider, to give thought to your response to that situation I just described. Because that's what the Apostle Paul has been doing since Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He's been asking us to be mindful of our response to things. For example, as people deserving God's wrath, what is our response to God's mountainous mercies? As enemies of God, what is our response to God's lavish expression of love? 
as people morally unable to elevate ourselves to God's standard of righteousness? What is our response to his undeserved provision for our justification? That's what Paul's probing. Is our impulse to offer God our entire life and being as a sacrifice of worship? Does the mercy God has shown to us engender pride or humility? When someone does us wrong, do we react with revenge? When somebody does us evil, do we make them pay with evil? What is the impulse that rises within you toward ungodly perhaps from your perspective, unwise expressions of civil government. When those who mete out policies and propose mandates that are incongruent with our perspective, the Apostle Paul is he's remarkably silent when it comes to specificity, getting down into the nitty-gritty by which God would have us act. Does Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, does it, doesn't it just beg for answers to all kinds of questions? And rather than supplying particular, I think the term nowadays is granular directions for each and every nuanced situation, he calls us instead to probe our hearts. What's going on in you? For sure there are tangibles, but for the most part, God, through Paul, keeps drawing our attention back to the awesome mercies, the incomprehensible love that he has poured out on us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, now now let these mercies that have been shown to you, let this love that God has expressed to you cast a governing tint on how you React, how you respond to each and every situation, including the allowance by some parents for their children to decide if they're boys or girls or non-binary or some animal. And God addresses our response to these things in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. I invite you to stand if you're able, because we treasure God's word and regard it as authority, having ultimate authority over all of our thinking, all of our living. Follow along. Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake 
from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, you say it's to this one that you will look. To this one you will give your attention particularly. That is the one who is humble and contrite and trembles at your word. And um, Lord, there are a lot of things that make us tremble. Ultimately, um, we're asking for a work of your spirit so that we would tremble at the right things, we would tremble at you. We would tremble at your holiness. We would tremble at your righteousness. We would tremble at your freedom, power. And we would tremble ultimately at the remarkable ways that you have shown us mercy and compassion. And we're asking, God, that you would produce these same traits in us. As you have shown us mercy, make us merciful people. As you have been tender-hearted towards us, make us tender-hearted people. As, as you have rescued us, give us compassionate hearts for those who still need you. People who are broken. People who are lost. People whose thoughts are so tangled up. People who are harassed and thrown down spiritually. People who are in need of a great Savior. Pour that heart into us supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Romans chapters 12, 13, and 14 articulate what is referred to as the Christian love ethic. Romans chapters 1 through 11 articulate the surpassing greatness of the height and breadth and depth of God's love. Romans 12 through 14 articulate the implications of that great love and what it produces in the lives of God's people. According to Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2, God's mercies work, function, to produce a lay down our life love for God. Living sacrifices, all of life. According to chapter 12, verses 3 to 16, the gospel of God produces, functions to produce a lay down our life love for one another. According to chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, the gospel functions to produce love towards those who specifically have done us wrong, done us evil. And then in Romans 13, Paul unpacks the way by which 
the gospel functions to produce love in God's people toward the society in which we happen to live. And so the gospel, it produces a, a vertical response in relationship to God. It produces a horizontal response in relationship to our brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church. And it produces an outward expression of love in relationship to those in the world where we're located. One particular outward response to the gospel in God's people is good and godly citizenship. Ryan showed us that last week, drew our attention to how God governs government. And since all government derives its authority ultimately from God, all governing authorities are accountable to God, and therefore the most fundamental gospel disposition toward government in general is law-abiding, tax-paying, respectful citizens. Now in chapter 13, verses 8 through 14, Paul broadens this gospel implication and response to include respectful, compassionate citizenship and relationship to everybody. In other words, the main point of Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 14 is that Disciples of Jesus owe the society in which they live a debt of love. Disciples of Jesus owe the society in which they live a debt of love. Not only do we have a particular gospel responsibility to civil government, we have a gospel responsibility to society in general. And this responsibility, this so-called debt is articulated several times in our text, beginning in verse 8. Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments are summed up in this word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Our debt to society is not because we borrowed something. It's not what he's talking about. Our debt is because we have something that our society needs. It's an important distinction. Let me just say that again. Our debt to society is not because we borrowed something and have to pay it back. Our debt is because we have something, we have been given something that our society so desperately, desperately, desperately needs. And what we have that our society needs is the love of God in Christ. And so love each other. Love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love as God in Christ has loved you. Now what does that look like? What can be said about this obligation? that disciples of Jesus owe to the society in which they live. And I'm going I'm to suggest four things that I, I see here in the text. And the first is this. It is a debt, a debt of love that perseveres. We've been loved generously, and it's a love that once we are recipients of, it is a steadfast love. It never ends. And that's the way 
God's called us to live and love in the society in which we live. It's a debt in perpetuity. That is, in this age, the love our society needs is it's a need that doesn't go away. Romans chapter 13, verse 7. And it's got to be Dave Ramsey's life verse, right? Pay to all what is owed them. There are debts for which the goal is to make them go away. Pay them off. But for our neighbors, our colleagues, those on the other side of various social and political issues, our debt to them is to love them and it is a debt that has a principal balance that never reaches zero. Verse 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. No one means everyone. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love those who are outside the community of faith. Love even your enemies. There is no one from whom we are love debt exempt. Everyone needs the love of God revealed in Christ. And now we could assume that the second half of verse 8 implies at least some limit, term limit. It says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Has, past tense. But that would miss the point of reference to the Decalogue. You shall not commit adultery, or murder, or steal, or covet, or any other commandment. These are not one-timers. They're ongoing. Disciples of Jesus are loving people. Ongoing. The world knows that we are Christians by our ongoing love toward God, ongoing love toward one another, and ongoing love toward the people of the society in which we live. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus makes this most remarkable statement. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. That, that by the way, is the same thing as saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. That's your, that's your spiritual worship, a lifetime of love for God. But he goes on to say, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will have eternal life. Loved ones, loving others is a salvation issue. And then Jesus tells the, you know, the well-known story, the Good Samaritan, you know, the, this, how this despised outsider shows compassion, generous-hearted care for a robbery victim. And the story, as told by Jesus, is, is intended to expose the self-righteousness of a, of a local attorney. And Jesus makes sure to emphasize it. It wasn't the pastor, it wasn't the worship leader that stopped to serve this wounded, bloody man on the side of the road. It was the Samaritan, the guy that nobody liked. And then in this unexpected punchline, Jesus raises this question. Luke 10, 36. Which of these three, 
pastor, worship leader, Samaritan. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Who proved to be a neighbor? (laughs) Wait a minute. When it comes to fulfilling the ongoing perpetual debt of love we owe to society, the question is not, who's my neighbor? Like, who do I have to love? Questions now, what's the bare minimum that I have to do? Because that's what that self-righteous attorney was raising. The question is, are we proving to be neighbors in our society? Are you a neighbor to your neighbors? Are you a neighbor to your enemies? Are you a neighbor to these Ideas that seem rather strange to you, like identifying as cats or their parents. Are, are you a neighbor to your governing officials? And, and how do neighbors love? According to verse 9, the commandments summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what does neighbor love look like? Think of it like this. To what extent do you love yourself? It's popular in the world to say, you know, you just got to love yourself. Well, the assumption of Scripture is, is that we are all already absolutely, utterly, passionately devoted to loving ourselves. Do you care for yourself? Do you feed yourself? Do you make sure that your needs are met? Do you insist that you get, you know, your recreation time? Are are you committed to getting enough sleep and exercise? Do you pay your bills? Do you make it a priority to look after your own well-being? Maybe to the expense of others' well-being? Do you ever take a day off from caring for yourself? Is it your natural impulse to sneer and snicker and post ridiculing tweets and memes about you and things you've done? The debt disciples of Jesus owe to society is to persevere in loving the society in which they live as much as they already love, keep on loving, persevere in loving themselves. As our needs never go away, our neighbor's needs never go away. As God has so lavishly supplied what we needed most, we now have what our neighbors need the most. Neighbor love is a debt that in this age It never goes away. And so it perseveres. Second, the debt that disciples of Jesus owe to society is a debt of love as prescribed by God. God's the one who gets to decide what love means. God defines what it is. God defines what it is not. The word of God authoritatively establishes its 
boundaries and parameters. And that's really, really important because by nature we think that we could do it better. Verse 8 says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. That, that little phrase, love does no harm to a neighbor, that's, that's, that one's, that's one that people like to latch on to and disconnect it from the other part, which is fulfilling the law. The fulfilling of whose law? Who set up the rules for healthy God-honoring society? God did. Therefore, if we have questions regarding the standards, boundaries, limits of love... You know, we we defer to God's moral law. And this is is huge because when, if and when your kids decide that they would like to be something other than a boy or a girl, you're going to feel a lot of pressure when they say, you don't really love me. You hate me. If you really loved me, you would get me. <laughs> when someone says, hey, Romans 13 says, love does no harm to a neighbor. We're not hurting anybody. Paul refuses to pit love and law against each other. Nor should we. The rest of verse 10 says, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. In other words, the obedient thing is the loving thing. And the loving thing is the obedient thing. If we're going to fulfill our love debt to society, it will be by grace through the obedience of faith in our wise and holy Heavenly Father's prescription for making us healthy and wise. It's tempting. It's so tempting to swap doing the loving thing with doing the comfortable thing. Namely, whatever it is that will cause the least disturbance or distress and just make the pain and tension go away. Isn't this why Christians are so... We're so very prone to passive aggressiveness. After all, love does no harm. But loved ones, God alone knows what we and our neighbors ultimately need. He created our souls. He formed our hearts. And therefore, God knows what we need better than we do ourselves. And his law is the, his way of saying, you know, here's what you need. Do, do you really want to do your neighbor no harm? Well, then here's how. Trust me on this. Trust me on this and keep my commands. Look at me into my wisdom, not to the mindset of the world. And so the debt that disciples of Jesus owe to society is, is a love that is defined, prescribed by God. Thirdly, it's a, a debt of love with a kingdom perspective. 
In paying our love debt to our society, disciples of Jesus have to avoid two extremes. On the one hand, there's this temptation to live in a little ghetto of believers, you know, holding non-Christians and weird people at arm's length, mocking their folly and, you know, laughing at their foolishness and scoffing at all the dumb stuff that they're doing, withholding from them the very truth that they need the most. On the other is the temptation to so assimilate into the values and mindset of the culture around us that we're like no different than anybody else. And and it's with a well-intentioned desire to win them. Because we want to win them, we avoid making them feel bad with the unintended consequence of compromising our distinct identity as God's people and obedient servants. Romans chapter 13, verse 13 says, Let us walk properly, as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. See, those first ones, you know, we get all that, but it's, you know, the last two are a lot more acceptable among Christians. But not to the Lord. And that means that we live in the world and engage with the world while remaining distinct from the world. The, pro- the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah served the people of God during their exile in Babylon. And it was a situation not so unlike the Christians living under Nero in Rome, In Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 4, God speaks. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what you do. Build houses and live in them. In a broken society, tyrannical government, plant gardens and eat their produce, and take wives, and have sons and daughters, start families, multiply their, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. What God is saying to his people through the prophet is, overcome evil with good by bringing their love and faith to bear upon the public good of the city and the society in which they live. Our neighbors need to see well-cared-for houses and yards and gardens. Our neighbors need to see productive, well-ordered families and healthy marriages. They need to see Wise parenting. Our neighbors need to see how the gospel functions in believers' lives. This is exactly how Paul is instructing his disciples to live, the disciples of Jesus to live in Rome. Romans 13, 13 and 14 says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, and jealousy. Put on, put on. On the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Loved ones, we're citizens both of the state in this world that God has established over us and, and we are citizens of 
His eternal kingdom which has broken in through the person and work of Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. A new age has dawned. That's what it means when it says, you know, the dark is gone, the light is come. In it, in this kingdom, we have received something so great and so needed by unbelievers that we owe it to them to tell it to them, to show it to them. John Stott writes, Although both the state and the law are divine institutions, they are provisional structures, relativized by the last day when they will cease. That day is steadily approaching. Our calling is to live in the light of it, to behave in the continuing night as if, they, as if that day had dawned. So God's rule and reign are advancing even now. Every day, we, it's closer. We're closer to its consummation than we were yesterday. And therefore, we are to make the most of the time building our lives into the things of eternal importance, things that are going to last. The authority of God's word, the beauty of God's righteousness, the glorious community of the saints, and the power of his dominion. Here's the last thing. The debt disciples of Jesus owe to society is a debt that we're able to pay, a debt of love that we can pay because we're empowered through union with Christ. We've got like this supernatural, never exhausting account in Christ. How important do you believe it would be should be for us to love, to share the love we have received with others. God is so loving and glorious that to ignore Him is to be guilty of eternal hell. And therefore, relatives, neighbors, friends, co-workers who have not owned up to the truth of who God is and have not put their trust in Jesus face the reality of eternal punishment. It is inescapable. And every day, that reality is drawing closer. Romans 13, 11, and 12 says, You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation and judgment is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. How should that truth impact us? At the very least, we should feel profound compassion for unbelievers. In Romans 9, 1-3, Paul, Paul said, My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen. That's compassion. That's the love of God poured into one's heart and sees others as the needy ones that they are. And so, 
Loved ones, pray and ask the Lord to fill you with supernatural compassion. Supernatural compassion for those in our society who so desperately need the life and love of Jesus. I, we hear stories like I, I, I told at the beginning. It should break our hearts. The ability to love even our enemies with lay down our life, love, neighbor love, it does not come from us. It comes from the life of Jesus in us and upon us, working through us. And so Paul says in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. One of our highest priorities has to be to love our neighbors as much as we already are so devoted to loving ourselves. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. The one who loves another with the love by which he or she has been loved by God in Christ has fulfilled the law and lives. And that requires a supernatural work of God. And now he calls us to love those in the society in which he has placed us with this same love. With the love of Jesus clothing us, upon us, displayed through us, empowering us. Let's ask him to move in us and work through us now. Let's pray. So, Lord, because your kingdom has come and invaded this world, because the light of that kingdom has dawned, because that dawn is turning to daylight all over the world, may we put on Jesus Christ now, anew and afresh, every day, putting Keep putting him on, putting him on, putting him on. Keep drawing from the life of Jesus. Keep drawing from the presence of Jesus. That we might have the mind of Jesus. That we might have the perspective of Jesus. That we might have the heart of Jesus. That we might be empowered with the power of Jesus. To love. To love others. To love one another. To love our enemies, to love those who do us harm, to love those who are harassed and thrown down by demonic oppression, love those who are broken and confused, love those who are living in utter rebellion to you, love those who need you, need what we have received. Come, Holy Spirit of God. We know that you reside in each one. That pilot light is lit. But we're looking for a fresh whoosh when that, when that furnace goes on and we experience your empowering presence and you cause us to be witnesses for the glory of Jesus' name in all the earth. So let your kingdom come. May your rule and reign be established among us and through us. 
cause your will to be done in this world as it's being done in heaven. Help us now, Lord. We look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.